attention, attention all personnel. It's MASHCAST. Hello and welcome to MASHCAST, the show that examines and celebrates, one episode at a time, the greatest TV series of all time, MASH, which ran on CBS from 1972 to 1983. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I'm your host, Corporal Captain Rob Kelly, and joining us once again, the VIP tent is Lieutenant Colonel Scott X. Hi, Scott. Welcome back. Hey, Rob. It's great to be back. I always enjoy the opportunity to spend some time with you here in the swamp to sip a little gin, play a little poker, and talk some classic television. <laughs> it sounds uh, it sounds good. It sounds good to me. Uh, of course, you have been on the show before, so we yes. already know your your secret origin with MASH. So we can get right to the episode. And this is a season one, episode twenty, the Army Navy game. Original air date February twenty fifth, nineteen seventy three. Written by Sid Dorfman and. McLean Stevenson, yes. uh, directed by Gene Reynolds. Um, while Radar collects bets on the upcoming Army-Navy game, Hawkeye Trapper and some of the nurses are in Henry's office as he tunes in the game. The celebration is halted by the sound of incoming artillery. Bombs begin to fall, and some debris hits Henry, knocking him silly. Frank insists that he is in charge, but when he proves useless, Hawkeye essentially takes over. Things get worse when an unexploded bomb lands in the center of the camp. Hawkeye calls HQ and asks them what to do. He gets a hold of a flunky who seems more interested in the Army-Navy game, but tells them to get all the markings off the bombs they can so they can report back. Frank, still insisting he's in charge, is guilted into going out to check on the bomb, but faints before he can take one step out the door. Hawkeye does the job and, with his stethoscope, can hear that the bomb is ticking away loud and clear. Later, Henry is recovered from his blow to the head and reassumes command. The Army says the bomb doesn't sound like any of theirs. Try the Navy! The Navy isn't much help, saying it isn't one of theirs either, but they promise to look into it. In the meantime, the camp passes time. Hawkeye, Trapper, and Ugly John play cards. Radar makes time with a nurse, and Frank and Hot Lips have a romantic moment alone. The Navy finally calls back and tells the 477 that the bomb belongs to the CIA. Hawkeye wonders why the Navy can't get specific info about the CIA, and Henry answers it's because the CIA won't tell anyone its business. Hawkeye and Trapper volunteer to go out and dismantle the bomb with the help of the instructions they've gotten from the Navy. They follow the instructions to the letter, but when a poorly sequenced part of the instructions caused them to snip a wire too soon, they run and duck for cover. The bomb does go off, but all it shoots out is paper? Yes, paper. Leaflets telling the enemy to give up. They have no chance of winning. Signed, Douglas MacArthur. As Trapper explains, it's a propaganda bomb. To make matters worse... Navy ends up beating Army 42-36. All right, and, worse, so, and, and worse yet, Father Mulcahy wins the pool. <laughs> Father Mulcahy wins the pool, yes, of course. So, all right, Scott, why did you want to talk about this one? Um, this, you know, There are three episodes um, that I would say are my favorites of season one. Um, this one, and, and I will also be, to, to full disclosure here, when we, when we talked about this, I think there are only four episodes left unclaimed. Uh, when we talked about doing the season, but strangely, two of my three favorite episodes were the ones that were left. So the first one we did um, on episode four was Chief one of my Surgeon favorites. Who, yeah. So, well, yeah, Chief Surgeon Who, and this one. So this one I just found I I've always liked it. I don't know exactly why. 
I think it is sort of comic, but I think there's a lot more depth to it than, than other episodes, and, and maybe that's quite illustrated on the surface. I think maybe that's part of why I like it. This one is my um, this is my favorite episode from season one. Now, I would argue that sometimes you hear the bullet is sort of objectively the best episode right, right. of season one, certainly the most uh, uh, historic, and it certainly set the tone for MASH, and, and it's a tone that MASH would follow for the, the remaining ten seasons. But this is my favorite episode. I find it so fun, uh, so tense, I mean, and, and also it really underscores, like, how strange life would be to live in a war zone. I mean, this, they, they talk frequently about how the 477 is only three miles from the front, but a lot of the time they don't, you know, they kind of put that in the back of your mind because everything seems relatively secure. But at times where, you know, there are bombs going off and there's artillery being fired, these guys, these doctors, are right in the middle of it. And so the idea of a bomb that lands in the in the middle of the camp and everyone's just waiting to see if it explodes. I do think is such a great premise. And I have to say, I am really impressed that this was the work of McLean Stevenson, that this Absolutely. was his story. I yep. mean, uh, what a great, what a tribute to not only as an actor, but he came up with a, with a humdinger of a plot. It, 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 when, I, when I saw that, it always made me wonder of what, from what perspective did McLean Stevenson approach this? Was it the football game perspective? Because it was really tied together nicely, and I think there's some yeah. sort of double entendres kind of within the story. And I liked how you said, too, about this element of tension in there. For a comedic dramedy, dra- comedic drama or a dramedy, as they're called sometimes, um, there really was tension in this episode. I, I watched the DVD without the laugh track, with the laugh track removed, and some of the music and some of the, it. I thought it really did create good tension. The part where they're trying to defuse the bomb, and you know the two main stars, you know Hawkeye and Trapper, are not going to get blown up by this bomb. <laughs> Yet not, there no. was a, an element of tension there, which I thought was really well done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I like I just like that idea, and it's a great visual of having this giant metal thing in the middle of the camp. I mean, McLean Stevenson, other than Alan Alda, is the only actor to work behind the camera of the show. I mean, none of the other actors until later on, Mike Farrell and Harry Morgan and David Huggins, they would all later on direct episodes. But other than Alan Alda, he was the only person to contribute to the writing of an episode. And he actually wrote another episode in season two. So again, I'm, I'm really impressed by this. I think it's, I mean, the, 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 the teleplay is by Sid, the Dorf Dorfman. So, I mean, he did a good job too. I don't want to slight him. I mean, he had to right. flesh out what was Stevenson's story. We have of course, no idea how little of a story, there might have been. I mean, McLean Stevenson might have said, hey, what happens if a bomb lands in the middle of the camp? Right. Okay, well, you get credit for that. If you know, I mean, it might have been that little. Well, I don't I think, know. I think there must have been more to it because I think if I'm, if I'm not wrong, um, McLean Stevenson got an Emmy, nom- Emmy nomination for this story. Did so there really? must have How been, did I miss yes, that? Wow. I, I saw that in, when I was researching. I saw that. So, and if, if that's correct, uh, there, he, he must have had some substantive input. Um, into the story and, and, and a little bit more than, like you said, just a bomb drops in camp kind of a thing. Wow. Good for him. I like that. And uh, this episode was directed by Gene Reynolds, who was, of course, was one of the producers of the show. He went on to direct 24 episodes of MASH and produced the show up and through uh, season five. He's still around. He's 95 years old. Uh, God bless him. And he produced both of the reunion specials again. So I don't want to slight him. I mean, this is a very well-directed show. All the scenes of them of uh, of Hawkeye and then Hawkeye and Trapper walking out with you know in their in their stocking feet as uh, Henry points out what are you doing out here in your stocking feet <laughs> not wanting to set the bomb off they, that has some real good tension and it's a nice act break where Hawkeye is, is the first one to examine the bomb and he's you know 
what does it sound like? Oh, it sounds fine. The the bomb is ticking loud and clear. Like that's a great act break, you know, what? to head into season, set into uh, the second act break. I liked how he said that too. He said, it's ticking loud and clear. And so is the bomb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like meaning his heart was ticking loud and clear too. That's my heart. So is the bomb though. <laughs> I love the idea that of course, I mean, it's, it's absurd that the camp would volunteer the two surgeons to go defuse the bomb. I mean, they're kind of the most valuable people there. They would, I really think you would send Goldman and Klinger out to do this. You wouldn't risk your two doctors, but of course, you know, they're the stars of the show. They're going to get the main action. I had the same note. I had the same thing in my notes. I thought they're going to send some low level grunts out there to try and defuse that bomb for sure. And the rest of them are going to be somewhere else far away. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this show uh, does open with the more jazzy and upbeat version yes. of Suicide is Painless. The, hey, baby, suicide. Yeah. And they, <laughs> they would eventually get get rid of that, of course. But I always find it's funny to point that out when they were trying something a little a little different. There's some uh, little weird little bits here in terms of trivia. We hear we hear um, Henry uh, talk to his wife where he calls her Mildred uh-huh. at one point. And of course, they would change that over time. They would change it to Lorraine. Uh, later on in the later seasons. And, of course, Colonel Potter's wife was Mildred. So I don't know they were really fixated on the name Mildred for some reason. I I think Mildred was – I read that somewhere, and I can't remember. Mildred was the name of someone's wife, someone who was involved with the show. Ah, And and so that's that's why that – was like that makes sense uh this episode is the the uh, debut of uh, actress bobby mitchell here she plays lieutenant mason she's kind of got that bubble voice that helium voice she's the one who's uh, again in, in the office with henry and hawkeye and trapper she would go on to play here she here she's credited as lieutenant mason she would go on to play lieutenants marshall gilbert lyons murphy Abel, <laughs> Baker, and Gage. <laughs> just never, it really wasn't until the end where they, I think they, she played Gage, I think, more than one time. So I guess she's known for that more than anything else. But that's very strange that they just could not settle on a name for her character for some reason. But they liked her enough to keep bringing her back, I guess. So maybe, yeah, they, could they, pay, maybe they could pay her less if she wasn't then not a recurring character. So they could oh, just change God. her name Wouldn't that be time? sad if that was the oh, case? That would be horrible. Was, oh, my God. That would be terrible. They're, her most, probably her... Her two biggest episodes are in um, season four is Out of Sight, Out of Mind, where it's the one where Hawkeye loses his sight because she's in that. And then later on that season where Hawkeye does the uh, Jeep stuffing thing for, for to build morale, uh, he says, okay, everybody, here comes Lieutenant Gage. And you hear, yeah, <laughs> because Bobby Mitchell was quite curvy. So that's kind of her biggest <laughs> part. But I, I love how um, Hawkeye and Trapper are so into the game. Like, that's really cute. Like, they're all really enthusiastic. It's, yeah. I would imagine if you're at the, the 477th and you don't have wounded to take care of, you're looking for any distraction possible. So, like, this is their Super Bowl, I would well, guess. Yeah, that was a, that was a big deal back in in the early part of the 20th century. That was bragging rights, was between the army and navy, sort of that inter inter service rivalry, so to speak. And I know um, I was reading up on that, and they say a lot of times at that time that was a big game too, because army and navy were very good football teams, and they were often had national championship. Um, ramifications there. Um, not so much more recently, but certainly it was at that time. Hmm. Uh, game show host Tom Kennedy provides the radio voice for the Army-Navy game. We hear him narrate the, the game. Now, there is no... This MASH got this historically wrong. There was no Army-Navy game that ended 42-36. Right. That's a wrong... The game in 1951... Ended in uh, was a forty two seven game, uh, and the, the Navy won that. But Mash, I guess they didn't bother. They didn't really matter whether they got it right or not. Yeah, and, and it's sort of weird because the, the radio at the beginning states this was the fifty third Gridiron Classic, which actually, from what I read, was it sets the year nineteen fifty two. 
Mm. Which the actual game that year was Navy won seven to nothing, and to and the, at the end of this episode they say, "Oh, Navy won forty-two to thirty-six. That would have been a hum, humongously high score for any Army Navy game. They're usually very low scoring." Oh really? Oh, oh okay. yeah. In fact, it would have been the highest scoring combined score game of all time, still to this wow. day. <laughs> <laughs> and back back in the fifties, they played the game a little different. That would have been certainly a very high score. Interesting. Okay, I never, I never knew that. I have no familiarity with the Army Navy other than its existence, and I might have learned about that it was a thing by the show. I don't. I mean, I mean, I'm. I don't really have any. I don't have. I have zero military background, so I have no familiarity with this. So this might have been the the, the, the way it was introduced to me. Um, there's an interesting scene with Mulcahy and Klinger where Klinger decides he's just going to wear his regular clothes, and he says. Um, you don't recognize me without a dress. And McKay's like, yes, I, I've never seen you before with a dress, which is, of course, entirely not true because in the Dear Dad episode, that's the one where Klinger just wears the red neckerchief, which gets yeah. him in the fight with uh, Frank Burns. And McKay, he has talked to him all throughout that episode. So yeah. they just completely forgot about that scene, which is it's always so strange to me that, like, when the actors get that, didn't either one of the actors say, hey, wait a minute, this is wrong, or they just – were William Christopher and Jamie Farr so happy to get something to do that they're not going to risk, you know, crossing the writers by saying, "Hey, you guys need to rewrite this." They're probably just happy to get the gig. Well, yeah, and I, and I think it was interesting too. And I don't, I, I don't know. I didn't look this up, but I, what was the production order? You know, was one produced before the other, and so that really wouldn't have happened while they were filming it. I don't know. I guess I didn't. I didn't look that up beforehand. But that's always one thing I think of because it. That happens sometimes in some of the Star Trek episodes where an episode aired later than it right. was produced before another. And so sometimes there were discrepancies just from that. I guess that's possible. I mean, Dear Dad was episode 12 and this is episode 20. They would have yeah, to be that, really out of they order. They would have really had to been out of order for that. But, I mean, it's it's possible. It's certainly possible. Um, I, I did like the fact, too, that in that same scene we got a little bit more insight sort of into – Klinger's character. When I was in um, the, the first time I was on, we talked a little bit. That was the first episode that Klinger was was in, and how they had originally, um, the director had originally asked Klinger to play it in a, in a very effeminate way, him dressing, and how that wasn't how the character was conceived. And in this episode, Klinger talks about, you know, I'll do anything to get out of the army, and I want you to know, Father, that's why I dress in women's clothes. And then he talked, so that kind of reiterated that, and he talked about he was wearing his the suit that he was drafted in, and he wanted to wear it when he got out of the army, but in case he died, he wanted to wear it. And then he also talked about um, when he got drafted, before the draft board, he ate the eye chart and <laughs> licked, licked the physician's ear and stabbed himself with a, a thing, um, a letter opener in the heel. And he said he, said he did not believe in killing, and so he, that's why he did not want to volunteer for the army. And so that he would try to do anything he could to get out of that situation. Oh, yeah. Jamie Farr has, again, this is, he's got an amazing line in that scene where he's in Mulcahy's tent. And he says, I was brought up to respect life. Yes. That's impossible around all this killing. killing. Yes. And I, that's, I, that is a, that's a thread that they would string, along, string through the series. There's an episode in season six where Klinger says something very similar to Major Friedman. And it, it kind of – it really gives you an insight into the character that you would – is easy to miss because he's so clownish, of course. He's running around in Cleopatra outfits and dressing like a Dorothy from Wizard of Oz. But he is really – I mean if you want to kind of take that to its furthest – to its illogical extreme, he's essentially a conscientious objector. Yes. He is saying I object to this and that's of course was a thing that you could – 
you could um, apply for uh, to get out of being in the military. We say, look, I just I, I disagree with this on a moral ground, but I I really like that they gave Klinger that angle. It's not that he's a coward, and it's right. not that he doesn't want to serve his country. It's he believes in respect for all life, and he doesn't want to participate in something where that means you have to kill people. And I ju- I, I think. That's an extraordinary line to give a tertiary character like this. Absolutely. I, I just love that. And, and he was still very dutiful. He was there. He did his job, which was he was stationed in a, in a medical unit, which is probably helps with his ideology. But, yeah, I mean, that's a, that, that's a very interesting character beat that I think that he was given appropriately. And like you said, for a tertiary character, that's a lot of depth, especially at this point in season one. Yeah, yeah, it really is. That's uh, that, I, I'm impressed by that. And again, they, they they would continue on. I mean, it would be something that would that would they would mention that throughout the series. Of that was his big objection was yeah, I and, do and, not. And that and that comes back into play in season two when when uh, Doctor Friedman comes and they're going to try and get him out of the army, and then he actually doesn't go because he'd have to sign the well. Really, and you'll get to that when we get into season two. But yeah. <laughs> the point the point being again, he becomes very dutiful and he's he's he very much wants the reason he's very much it's important to him the reason that he's not that he doesn't want to be in the army. I'll just leave right. it at that. Right. Yeah. It's just that it's a really great turn for that for that character. Um there are some other said there are great lines in this. I mean I like when they're deciding when Hawkeye Trapper and 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 Frank are deciding who is going to defuse the bomb or go out and listen to the bomb, and Frank of course says, "Well, I'm a married man and I've got a family," and that that's the, you know in his mind that's his excuse to get out of it. And Trapper says, you know, uh, reminds everybody, "Well, he's married too." And then he looks at Hawkeye and he goes, "That means you've got more to live than either of us." Yeah, <laughs> Just a very, very cynical view of marriage, but yeah. I like great line of of uh, for for uh, Wayne Rogers and very much in character with Trapper. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It also features the classic bit of – and we've seen this in a million other TV shows where someone has to – it's usually something around an explosive because it has to have something with a countdown. But there's always the classic do this, then do this, then do this, but first – and they, you know, like no one in their right mind would build an instruction booklet like that, which would tell you to do one, two, three, four – Oh, wait a minute. Here's 3A in the middle of that because it means you could be killed. I mean, MASH would return to that gag in a, in a later season, but it's it's a classic comedy staple, which is the butt first. Like, what what crazy person wrote these instructions? Oh, and I very much think that that there was very much some underlying thoughts in that line was, was again, one of those double things. Um, and we can talk about that as we wrap up in the episode, but there, I think there's very much a point to that, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, there absolutely is. Um, uh Shot wise, it was a really great. Show. I've talked about this in other episodes where you know, Mash being a TV show is not a um, director's medium; it's a writer's medium, and the, the directors are brought in really to just kind of bang it out and get it done on time. They don't. There isn't a lot of ambitious uh, shots right. going on in cinematic, in TV, cinematic. Yeah, there, right. You know, I mean, nowadays more so. You know, Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad and stuff. But back then, it was really just get these get get these journeymen in and, and get this done. But I love. The thing of uh, where the bomb goes off, one of the bombs goes off outside Henry's office. You don't see it, but you hear it. And then it's just as Hawkeye is trying to leave, and all this wind mm-hmm. comes blowing through, and it blows open the doors, and all this paper comes flying in, and it actually knocks Hawkeye almost off his feet over the desk. I just And there's no music behind it. I just love that shot of, like, 
yeah, not only is there the explosion, but there's this enormous amount of just wind that's created when something like that happens not that far from you. I just think it's a it's a very nice nice little effect. So it really gives the the whole thing like some verisimilitude. I really like that. Yeah, and it has sort of that shockwave effect. And yeah. I had to chuckle. I had to chuckle too, and and, and to, to go along with that when they were in, in the OR. Or, or the post-op or pre-op or wherever they happen to be, where they were putting mattresses over the patients yeah. to protect them from these bombs, which which always harkens back to me of those videos I've seen in the 1950s where they have the school kids doing drills to get under their desk to <laughs> right. protect them from the nuclear explosion. You know, it, it, what's it really going to do? It may protect from some debris, but the fact is that's really what they would do. I mean, they were that's yep. the only thing they had to do. We got to do something. So they do stuff like that because there is secondary effect of those explosions as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to go back to mention, I said, Sid Dorfman, uh, like I said, this was his teleplay. He worked on other shows like Burns and Allen. He goes back that mm-hmm. far. He wrote some Good Times. He worked on the show Rollout, which was a sort of, it's not a spinoff of MASH, but it's a companion piece to MASH because it was produced and written by Larry Gelbart and Gene Reynolds, and it took place in a military outfit. Um, so, and it only lasted, I think, a season or two, and you can find episodes of it on uh, YouTube. I have to check them out because I want to see if it's worth even, because there were some MASH veterans in there and things like hmm. that. It's, it was really them tr- truly trying to capitalize on their success with MASH. But the, the, the other credit of his I want to mention, and this is just such a weird thing about the way memory works. He did a show. He worked on a show called One in a Million, which starred Shirley Hemphill from What's Happening. What's she happening? was the, the sassy waitress in, in, in What's Happening. Now, One in a Million, I think, lasted like half a season. It was just one of those shows where they, <laughs> I guess they thought maybe she would be, you know, she could be the lead and it didn't work. Huh. I watched One in a Million when it aired. Cause I, and I can, to this day, remember the theme song to <laughs> One in a Million, even though I have not heard it in the 35 years intervening. How does my brain work? Why do I remember the One in a Million theme song it and must they, have been it must have been a one in a million that's all i can I, say yeah, i don't know it's completely baffling i don't even want to see it on youtube i just want to keep it on my memory but when i when i was looking at his credits i was like oh he worked on that show and i could hear the tune that's awesome like, what is that well i don't i can't remember the names of some girlfriends i've had and yet i remember the theme song to a shirley hemphill tv series that aired for six weeks it's very very strange <laughs> He, you know, he he had a lot of, like you said, credits too. He worked on Good Times and Alice, The Love Boat, a lot of those staple shows from that time period. Sid Dorfman was he was involved in. Yeah, he had a long, long, long career. Um, actor wise, uh, Sterner, which is the guy, the first guy they call, he's played by John A. Z., which I can't believe is his real name. A. Z. <laughs> come on, come on. Uh, and he worked on SWAT, McLeod, Bring Him Back Alive, Cannibal Run Two, and one of his credits is Bald Executive. In Arthur Two on the Rocks, which is you know like wow, okay, thanks. <laughs> That's digging deep, right Thank, there. Thanks for that. They couldn't give me a name. I just be called bald executive. <laughs> Sheila Lauritsen is a nurse Hardy. That's the that's the nurse that radar uh, charms into the tent. Uh, she was in twenty different episodes of Mash and one Starsky and Hutch. That's pretty much her career. Again, I don't I don't get that how you can be in. 20 mashes and then never managed to pick up another gig ever again, <laughs> but nevertheless. And then the other actor is uh, Colonel Hirsch, the Navy guy. He's played by Alan Manson. He was in um, the, he was in a lot of big movies. Uh, the Devil's Advocate, The Doors, Bang the Drum Slowly. He did, did appearances on Quincy, T.J. Hooker. And he was in another great little movie called Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which is a kind of low-budget horror movie. It was actually very effective. So, yeah, that was the uh, the actors in uh, for this one. And it, I thought it was sort of funny in that we see a lot of offices 
in this episode. Like, we see the Navy office. We see the Army. Like, I always wonder, is that stuff – those must be standing sets they on the Fox lot that they've used for other TV shows and then they just yeah. repurpose because you're not going to spend the money to build all those. Because you see guys in the background and you see phones and you see lots of stuff. I mean, it's a lot of – it's a lot of uh, deep attention to detail for just one or two scenes of featuring these actors. Yeah, I, I can't imagine they built new sets for that or really even had those as standard. Um, they must have just used something else. And, you know, the one the one important uh, set that we did not get to see was the inside of the supply tent. No, we don't get to see. <laughs> <laughs> Although Radar did. but that's... Radar gets to see. Yeah, he's actually pretty successful with the girl here. Uh, where he's like, he's just a little bit about the, I'm trying to wink. And she says, you don't have to. So. Yeah. I'm guessing it was one of those moments where maybe in normal circumstances she would not go off with radar, but maybe she was figuring life was, you know, she's going to die soon, so what the hell, that kind of thing. We'll, well, we'll never know. Well, and, and it is sort of funny because this is another one of those episodes where radar is sort of out of character. He's he's sort of a ladies' man with respect yeah. to that. He he's drinking brandy and smoking cigar with Henry at one point again <laughs> during the during the show, and and then um, in, in a sort of a comedy throwback at the end, radar tries the line. Again, um, but it doesn't work out to his benefit quite so much. No, they do. Again, they do the classic gag of you seeing a woman, quote unquote, from behind, and it looks sort of nice, and then turns around, and of course, it's it's Klinger. So, <laughs> which, which was funny because the very first one of the very first scenes was Radar walking with Klinger. Hey, you want to get in the pool? And and he says no. He says I something. I can't remember how the conversation went. And he he said something about I'm only worth. I only am just the only thing I'm interested in is getting out of the army. And Radar says, well, if you keep wearing those dresses, you will. And and, and then Klinger says, well, the only thing I get is whistles. And Radar kind of looks at him up and down and says, yeah, uh huh. And then at the end, he's the one who's sort of whistling at Klinger, just trying to use his story again. There you go. Do you have a favorite line from this episode? A particular favorite, either line or, or gag. Oh, I think probably oh, that one was probably it was the one at the beginning where Klinger uh, says that about trying to get out of the army. And then Radar kind of looks it up and down and says, like, uh-huh, you're getting a lot of whistles. I think that was probably my favorite one. My favorite one is when – Because when it tied to the end. Right. My favorite one is when, when they're in the office and Mulcahy comes in and he's rooting for Notre Dame. Yeah. yeah. And, and Henry, Henry says sort of annoyed, father, Notre Dame isn't playing. And William Christopher puts just the right – disappointment where he just goes oh what's all the excitement about yeah, exactly. i just love that the read on that is perfect he's genuinely flummoxed why anyone would care about a football game unless Notre name is playing i just i love that they gave him again you think about that they gave you could argue the best gag and the best straight line to the side characters which again is pretty yeah. pretty you know charitable these writers to do that Mulcahy, he had his Notre Dame pennant too, as they were all yes. kind of had their pennants. Yeah. He had the pennant yeah. too. He was he was all in for the Notre Dame game, which wasn't yeah. actually being played. <laughs> now you talked about uh, before uh, that you feel like there is some some commentary with the whole the bomb thing. Now what what's uh, what's on your mind there regarding this episode? Well, you know, I think I think, and you tell me if you if you agree with this or not. But I, I've always thought um, Mash overall was sort of created by people with a sort of 1960s ideology talking about the 1970s and more so as the seasons went along and particularly the Vietnam war, um, though through a show set in the 1950s in the Korean war. And I think the viewers themselves oftentimes came to see this show as an allegory for the Vietnam war and the time they lived in, which was the 1970s. I think there's a lot of things this show, this particular episode kind of gets a lot into that, um, the, 
military incompetence or secrecy of the CIA and some of those type of, of issues. They're they're done humorously, but I think there there's a lot of little digs at that kind of stuff. You know, and you mentioned one of the line, well the CIA doesn't tell anything that they're doing. You know, <laughs> and their tactics, you know, the CIA they drop a bomb with leaflets in it. Is that really an effective tac- tactic? Obviously, if uh, if Hawkeye and Trapper could read it, it's in English. Is that really yeah, right? Getting to yeah. The North Why would you, yeah. And... Why would you even do that? I mean, why would you put the ma- maybe? Although maybe it's in multiple languages, and yeah. Trapper just read the English version. Yeah, and which which is probably which is probable actually. Now that you say that, I, I've actually seen some of those real flyers, and that's what they did. But it, but it's it was sort of like you know, um, you can never win. Give up. Douglas MacArthur and I kind of thought, are they really talking to the North Koreans or the or the people in the four hundred seven seventh because of this <laughs> horrible military bureaucracy which we've seen in the past that sends them plungers and and summer underwear when they're supposed to be long underwear? They see this military machine that's more interested in the football game and sort of these bragging rights than they are about the lives of the of the people in the four hundred seven seventh and what's going on. I, I couldn't help but but feel like this this sort of really illustrated that point in and in, again in a in a sort of humorous way right and i and i like that that line about the cia won't tell anyone it's business uh, yeah that is that is something again they would return to in a later episode but that idea that not all of the american uh centers of power are working in concert with yes. one another and that's something that when you're younger you just think they do because it's like well aren't we all on the same team but as as you get older, you start realizing no, there are cross purposes, and there are organizations that don't like other organizations. So the idea that the the army or the navy would go to the CIA and say, "Hey, what is this bomb you dropped?" and the CIA would go say, "Go f off." He's like, "Wow, yeah. aren't we? Jeez, you know." So I and I love that line. I think that the CIA won't tell anyone it's business. Even back then, the CIA was sort of full of itself, and we're like, yeah. "We can do this if we want to." I think that's a great. It's a very trenchant line wrapped in a kind of just a, an offhanded joke. I think it's terrific. And I, and I laughed, like you said, that passing the phone calls or, I don't know, call the Navy, you know, well, you call yeah. the army. They're, they're trying to figure it out. Well, I'll call you back, but don't, but, but, you know, don't call me back until halftime and, and all, of the yeah. game and I'll call you back. And the one line too, again, the incompetence, you know, he said, you got to see if the, if the bomb is, is ticking. Do you have stethoscopes? You know, we're a, we're a, we're a medical unit. You know, you yeah. don't even know who is calling you. <laughs> and I would, I would also point out that I when I was prepping for this episode, I, I that whole idea of sort of, of mash being about, I'm um, sort of sticking it to the military and the viewers thinking it was really sort of an anti-war show by the end of its run, um, was very much the chagrin of Dr. Richard Hornberger, who under the pen name, Richard Hooker was the author of the original math mash book. And he was essentially the real life Hawkeye Pierce. Um, Hornberger, he hated the fact that those anti-war sentiments were attached to him through the show. And in 1983, he told a reporter for Newsweek that while the show was accurate in its physical portrayal of MASH, uh, a MASH unit, he said, quote, it tramples on my memories. And Hornberger's son, Richard, told told the New York Times that his father never intended to write an anti-war book. He said, quote, my father was a political conservative, and he did not like the liberal tendencies that Alan Alda portrayed Hawkeye Pierce as having, unquote. And I found that interesting just to say, you know, that shows sometimes sometimes things change from their original conception to final product for better or for worse. 
um, and maybe even more so um, what meaning is derived from a given work by those that consume the product. So what do we as the viewers take away from it? And it kind of goes again to that idea who ha uh, idea of who has creative control over a given concept or, or product. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the risk you take when you sell something to Hollywood. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, uh, the, there's a similar case kind of in the reverse of uh, Death Wish. You know, the author who wrote the book that Death Wish is based on, the Charles Bronson movie, that book, I've never read it, but if I want to understand the analysis of it, that book is a criticism of vigilante justice. And the the character in that, the Paul Kersey character, is this sort of hollowed out, empty shell of a person. And the guy that wrote the book was criticizing the law and order types that were rising under right. you know, Nixon in the 70s. And then they hand the movie over to, they turned it into a Charles Bronson movie. And of course, it became, it lost all of that subtext. Yeah. And it became very pro mowing down as many criminals as you can. And, you know, give Charles Bronson a gun. That's the that's the solution to all that's of society's problems. Yeah. And that poor guy had to live with that. You know, he, he yeah. actually, he, he went so far as to write a sequel book that was excoriating all of that. Like he was so upset. So yeah, I mean, yeah. You, the minute you take that risk, um, I've mentioned in other episodes that I have read other of Nash books and Hawkeye is, there's a line in one of them about where they said Hawkeye used to go down to the local college campus and quote unquote, beat the shit out of some hippies just for practice. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that may that's not any Hawkeye that I have any familiarity with no. or interest in reading. So, and, uh, and that's, that's right. I'm done with these books. Well, and let's face it. I mean, that portrayal of the characters, whether it be the original concept or not, if you had portrayed that in this TV show, it would have never been as successful as it was in in the long term, and and it would not have resonated with an audience in the 1970s. And he wrote that obviously from the perspective of having lived this life in the 1950s, but. This was being viewed in the 1970s, and that's why I always say it really is a show about the 70s, although the setting is the 50s. Yep, that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, I think in the MASH movie, that whole opening scrawl about this is Korea, I think that I think I read that that was mandated by the studio because uh, they wanted to more firmly say, mm -hmm. no, no, this is not about Vietnam, when everybody knew it was about Vietnam. Right, the movie right. came out in the 1970, the movie came out in 1970, right in square in the middle of the Vietnam War. Uh, and it was it was the studio that told Altman, no, you gotta you gotta firmly establish this is Korea, and so Altman sort of did it grudgingly, and everybody but everybody knows what they're talking about, as everybody knew what they're talking about with the with the series. So, yeah, I think this is a terrific episode. I've watched, I mean, I've watched every match thousands of times, but <laughs> I love this one. I just never tire it. I just think it's it's just great from beginning to end. It gets all the characters involved, even the, the side characters, Klinger and Mulcahy, who are still coming up. I think it's a great conceit. I like episodes where there's one plot line throughout the whole show. I mean, it's it's one central conceit, so I like that. And it's just very unusual. I mean, it's the, the, a bomb lands in the middle of the camp. That's a, that's a great... Uh, it's a great hook, and I like Hawkeye and Trapper working together. That's always something else, too. When they send the two of them out, it's like the two stooges. I just really yeah, exactly. enjoy that. And it also, of course, cements the idea that while Frank is nominally second-in-command, he isn't really because he just doesn't have it in him. It's uh, the, the leadership role naturally falls to Hawkeye because that's just who he is. And and let and and this is you know you and I have talked about this in a previous episode as you have with the others. Frank is more interested in the title of being the yes. commander than actually doing the work of being of being in command. He's more interested in the show or the the surface of what other people think about if he's in command than he is really having, like you said, the chops to be a commander and do what's necessary to be in command. 
Right. He wants a medal. He doesn't want to have to do anything to get you the medal. He just wants the medal. He just wants yeah, the, the recognition. Citation. He wants yeah. the recognition. So, again, it's another subtle thing that, that would that would play up in later episodes where I think you know, there was a sniper episode where, you know, Frank is always wanting to take second command and it's always Hawkeye turning to Hawkeye because Hawkeye's just a natural leader. That's just who he is. He doesn't want to be, as he, right. as he says himself. He's, his uh, family crest is a cringing chicken. But that's not true. I mean, he steps up when 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 the, the the situation warrants it. So yeah, I think this is a really great episode. It's my favorite one of season one. So I just think it's a, it's a real blast. So Scott, thank you as always for coming back on. Man, we always enjoy talking to you. Whatever show you're on on the network, we always enjoy. You were just uh, made an appearance over on Ciscoid Show on the FW Team Up, and that was a terrific show. So uh, thank you for coming on. Hey, it's always my pleasure. And before I uh, before we wrap up, I want to make. One little correction. While we were talking, I looked that up. Mildred was Larry Gelbart's cousin. Was was that? That's what that was because it was going to okay. drive me nuts that I couldn't remember that exactly. So that's where Mildred comes in. Um, and now we know who Mildred represents throughout the entire uh, series of Mash. There we go. Good to know. Good. We'll style that, file that away in the old memory bank. So yeah, awesome. Well, I said you have more appearances on the network uh, coming up. I know that. I don't know if you've if you've recorded them yet, but you've got them on the the docket, right? Oh, absolutely, and I have a couple uh, to to talk to you about at some point, some other ones perhaps to get on the schedule down the road. So, yeah, I, I have uh, one tentatively scheduled with Shag for the JLI Bwahaha podcast, um, which would probably be, I don't know, five or six months out at this point. I know Shag <laughs> schedules quite, quite a ways ahead there, and I was able to uh, fit myself in uh, to that, that robust schedule. So, um, And then hopefully there will be some other ones coming up as well. Absolutely. Very good. So, uh, again, thanks, everybody, for listening. Of course, if you want to subscribe to the show, you can go to iTunes or on Stitcher, where it has their individual feeds. You can leave comments about this episode over on our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com, and we're always talking MASH over on Twitter, which is as uh, at uh, MASH477Cast. And one last thing I want to mention just before we sign off is uh, this news broke that, of course, and I've mentioned this on the show before, Alan Alda has a podcast. Uh, the Clear and Vivid podcast, I believe is the name of it. And it was announced earlier this week that he is going to do a MASH reunion on his oh, podcast. Wow. Yeah. Um, now, I would suggest if they want to be on a podcast, I have an idea of what show they could be on. But, okay, that's – I was going to suggest the same thing. I mean <laughs> – Neither here nor there. But I'm very excited to know that he's going to have the whole gang of them on his podcast. That's that's super fun. I mean, that's just – I'm really looking forward to that. So once that – I don't think they have it scheduled. I thought I had read that they were planning on doing it soon. But, unfortunately, Jamie Farr's house was – um, in danger of burning down oh. due to the California wildfires. It didn't, but apparently that was causing some level of, of course, you know, anxiety that this might happen. But apparently he, him and his family are fine. The house is fine. But they had to reschedule. And they haven't rescheduled yet, but they are going to do it. So once that episode comes out, well, of course, I might even have to do a special episode of MASHcast just on that podcast. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> that would be great. Like, and re- it's certainly worthwhile for sure. Yeah, I mean, just to go on like an inception level of an analysis, I'm going to do a podcast about a podcast. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's any time that the the Mash Cast gets together, that's uh, that's exciting. So I'm really looking forward to that. So and if and if any of you haven't listened to Alan Alda's podcast, go check it out. Uh, he's a fun guy. I mean, he's always full of interesting ideas, and he's talking to interesting people. I mean, he's Alan Alda. He's the best. So yeah, that'll that'll be exciting when that comes out. So again, thanks everybody for listening, and uh, until the next episode, that is all.
Not only are we pinned down by enemy fire, we just got an unexploded bomb right in the middle of the compound, and everybody's waiting for the kickoff. Steady, Captain. And it's emergencies like this that separate the men from the boys. I'm sure it will. First of all, you're to stay put. Your whole sector is being hit very heavily. What about the bomb? You have to determine if the bomb is still ticking. You got any stethoscopes around there? We're a medical unit!